From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. Out in Pennsylvania on 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Nashville, Detour Talk in East Tennessee, and other fine affiliates, including... Radio Sputnik, where we are heard five days a week. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Friedman. I'm your friendly progressive blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Officials in Belgium have now declared three days of mourning following multiple terror attacks on Tuesday at both the Brussels airport and the city's metro station that killed dozens and injured hundreds. The explosion of three bombs, two at the airport and one in the train station, have so far resulted in the deaths of 34 and the injuries of 214. Those numbers are preliminary as we go to air here today. Uh, The death toll is most likely to rise in the coming hours and the coming days. The apparently coordinated attacks come just days after the capture of Salah Abdesalam on Friday in Brussels in connection with the terrorist attacks in Paris last November. The Islamic State, or ISIS, or Daesh, whatever you want to call them, has claimed responsibility for both the uh, Paris attack last November, of course, and the horrific bloodshed in Brussels that is still unfolding uh, from Tuesday. At least one of the explosions at the airport at around uh, 8 a.m. Brussels time appears to have been set off by a suicide bomber, according to officials. An airport spokeswoman said the airport would remain closed to all incoming and outgoing flights, at least until Wednesday morning. About an hour later, after those uh, first explosions uh, at the airport around 8 a.m., about an hour later, just after 9 a.m., at the height of the morning rush hour, another blast shook the Malbec subway station in downtown Brussels. That station is located near many European Union buildings, including the European Parliament. A third unexplosive, uh, unexploded device, a third device, I should say, was found unexploded uh, and said to have been uh, safely disarmed and removed from the evacuated airport a few hours later after those initial blasts. Late today, authorities are now uh, reporting finding yet another explosive device, this one said to have had nails in it. CBS is reporting that several Americans are among the casualties of the attacks. Mormon church officials say three missionaries from Utah 
were seriously injured in Utah, where uh, there will be uh, where there will be a caucus on Tuesday. Uh, in any event, uh, in a statement, the Department of the uh, the Department of Defense, U.S. Department of Defense, also said that one U.S. service member and his family who were caught up uh, were caught up in this tragedy. But due to privacy concerns right now, they are not releasing the status of their injuries at this time. The Defense Department and U.S. Embassy officials tell CBS News that they expect the number of American casualties in Brussels will go higher as there are many Americans who work in Brussels, particularly in the area around the uh, European Union and so forth. Um, all of that got me thinking uh, today as all of this was unfolding about uh, what, what Michael Ware, longtime war correspondent, had to say uh, over the weekend. Uh, he's releasing a new film called Only the Dead, based on his hundreds of hours of footage during his years in Iraq. He spent years covering that uh horrific war in Iraq, the price of which it appears we still continue to pay. Um, he was on HBO's Real Time over the weekend. He raised a few points that came to my mind immediately uh, w when I started uh, hearing about this uh, Brussels attacks, uh, these Brussels attacks on uh, on Tuesday. Uh, Desi Doyen, you're, you're here with me as well today. Yes, I want to yes. say hello. Hi. Um, some of these clips... Uh, from Michael Ware, uh, you know, it, it's it's just remarkable, the juxtaposition of seeing these things play out, uh, the, you know, these horrible attacks by ISIS at the same time that the presidential campaign is going on. And as we hear, uh, you know, guys like, well, the, the front runner, Donald Trump, talking about, oh, we must close our borders. We'll get to that. Uh, you know, he, he's wanted to keep out all Muslims out of the U.S., period. Now he's talking about closing our borders to everyone. Yeah, the first response seems to be panic. Yes. Yeah, we're, we're good at that, aren't we? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, we panicked after 9-11, and a lot of people went along with the, uh, with the Iraq War because they were so frightened. And, you know, it's one of the things I talk about when, when people say, oh, uh, don't worry about Donald Trump, he's a clown, it'll be the best thing to ever happen to the Democratic Party. Uh, no, something like this happens, uh, and people panic. And people get frightened and people get scared and people do stupid stuff that we end up paying the price for. Not just in the short term in an election, but decades down the road. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, Michael Ware on HBO on uh, on real time over the weekend. Well, uh, let me just play a couple of these clips as he was uh, talking about his film, talking about uh, some of the things in his film, talking about some of the things that he saw in his many years as a war correspondent in Iraq, um, and how that war, uh, that horrible mistake of a war, it's not even right to call it a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. It was on purpose. Um, that horrible decision to go to war based on all manner of lies that had nothing to do with 9-11, that had much to do with panic, not the people who made the decision, but certainly the people who supported the decision, who are, you know, quite willing to, uh, you know, support a leader when they come out and they say, this is what we need to do. We can't afford another 9-11. We can't afford, uh, who knows, if Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. And, of course, we know he does. But uh, even if he doesn't, 
Who can afford to take that chance? Well, those are decisions that we pay the price for a very, very long time, and we are still paying that price today. Michael Ware talks about how uh, every time we killed anyone, whether they were a terrorist, an insurgent, or anyone else in, in Iraq, how you know every person that we killed, every one that we killed, would create three more who wanted to kill us. For every one person we killed or captured, we, cre- we actually created two or three of course. new or more insurgents. I mean, we were almost in a no-win situation. And the incident you're talking about, there's two kids, two brothers, one's like 17 and one's like 15. They were driving through our neighbourhood where Time magazine lived to get the family's monthly food ration. Mm -hmm. It just so happens that there was an American raid going on hunting for Saddam that obviously didn't find him and some nervous GI lights up their car. And so this 15-year-old watches his 17-year-old brother's brains blown all over him. That's Michael Ware talking over the weekend on HBO with Bill Maher about uh, his new film based on his time in Iraq called Only the Dead. He said that uh, older brother, he happened to uh, to witness this incident or, or the aftermath of it. He said the older brother was uh, just screaming over his little brother who had been killed by these Americans, screaming, America, you will pay, you will pay. Uh, that was uh, that was the beginning of ISIS. That was that er, that insurgency, those uh, supporters of Saddam that we threw out during that war, that horrible war in Iraq built on lies. That is who we are now facing. The world is now facing in in Europe, uh, in this country. Um, Here's Michael Ware again uh, talking about exactly that in uh, and as he saw it happening uh, in real time, if you will, uh, and talking about it on real time over this past weekend. You know what it reminded me of was Apocalypse Now. The way you talk about Zarqawi, who is the guy who, as you say accurately, hijacked the insurgency. And the insurgency wasn't really a religious war. It had nothing to do right. with religion. But he hijacked this, and this is the forebearer of ISIS. Well, well is no, the- no, this is ISIS. Let's not forget the darkest legacy of our invasion of Iraq is that unwittingly we unleash the Islamic State upon ourselves. Of course. And upon the rest of the world. And that's just a fact. Yeah, that is just a fact. It's a fact that uh, is not talked about very much. It's not talked about, you know, I, I mean, I guess I, I need to give uh, credit to Donald Trump here to some extent, because at least he says what we did in Iraq was a horrible mistake. He did not say it at the time. He now likes to pretend he was against the war from the beginning, but he wasn't. But most of the Republican Party, uh, Ted Cruz uh, and, and the others, you know, they don't think Iraq was a mistake. They think we should go back. Even Donald Trump has talked about sending 20 or 30,000 troops back to Iraq. And yet it was Iraq that created ISIS. It was the Iraq war that created ISIS. The Iraq war back in 2000, what are we, 2003, we went into Iraq. And here we are, what, uh, 13 years later, 13 years later, still paying the price and 
not connecting those dots. It's so rare, you know, that you hear everyone goes into a panic uh, wall-to-wall coverage on, on CNN, on Fox, certainly on MSNBC, and they don't connect the dots. We are paying an extraordinary, an extraordinary high price for those terrible decisions that were made in 2003, not just by the George W. Bush administration, but by those folks who supported what the George W. Bush administration uh, was doing. You heard Michael Ware there talking about how three million of our children have uh, faced that horror, have fought in those wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Actually, I'm not even sure when he cites that three million number. Was he talking about Iraq specifically or Afghanistan? Do you, you recall? I'm not sure he didn't yeah. spe- specify, but it's probably a combination. Nonetheless, um, yeah, well, here he is talking about the uh, the souls of our children and, and the price that they paid uh, just fighting in that war, never mind uh, everything that has, uh, that has gone on since. I know what all of this saber-rattling and, and all of this adventurism shaves away from the souls of your children. I've seen it, man. If our film serves nothing else, it's, it's not just to remind you all of that, because, you know, you've been told, but there's no way you can know. And you'll see what it took from your children, from your Marines, from your soldiers, because it's, it's, it's more than the physical. Of it's course. about that place in the head and the heart that you have to go to. And almost three, point, three million of your children have experienced something like this. So that was uh, Michael Ware talking again about his film. I haven't seen it, so I can't, uh, I, you know, I can't tell you one way or another. But, um, I, you know, I, I was just reminded of it as soon as I saw, uh, you know, what was going on in uh, in Brussels. The choices that we make now, that we make now, that uh, many are making today at uh, at the ballot box around the country. Uh, have an effect long into the future. The decisions made in 2000, back in 2000, when George W. Bush was allowed to become president, when he was allowed, when he was selected by the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, much of the country just uh, sat idly by and watched. The choice, when that happened, Uh, That was a choice. That was a decision. That was a mandate from the court to stop counting the paper ballots that we could have counted in the state of Florida back in 2000. That directly leads to what happened today in Brussels. Those choices from years ago, we are still paying for. We are still paying the price for that now in 2016. We are paying the price for that in our election with our candidates with our blood, with our treasure. And yes, that choice to go to war in Iraq and destabilize the Middle East at the time uh, for at least, at least another generation now. We're, we're already 16 years. We're already a generation beyond what happened in, uh, in, in Iraq in 2003. And this has... This, this fight shows no time of... no hint of ending anytime soon. So that choice, uh, we are paying that for at least another generation hereafter. And it was a choice supported by all of the candidates on the Republican side right now, including Donald Trump. uh, But also including uh, Ted Cruz, also including John Kasich, 
And on the Democratic side, it was also supported by Hillary Clinton, who years later now has said that that choice was a mistake. But she did make that choice to go along with George W. Bush. She did make that choice to put to to, to put us into that war 16 years ago, 13 years ago, I guess. I can't do math. 13 years ago that we are now uh, still continuing to pay an unspeakable price for. Among those now running to be our next president in these United States from the major two parties in any event, only Bernie Sanders voted against that war at the time, warning that uh, what we are now seeing happen is what would happen. Indeed, that has happened. And he warned about it at the time. Now, you may uh, may or may not feel that's a reason to vote for or against any of these candidates. Maybe you're, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton has has said she made a mistake. She has apologized. She says she's learned a lesson from it. Maybe you accept that. But the fact is, that was her position at the time. That was the judgment she made. That was the judgment that many people turn to now and say, well, you know, we, we think Hillary Clinton has the best uh, judgment in these matters. She has the most uh, experience with foreign policy and everything else. OK, maybe. But that was her position at the time. She sent us into that war, which brought us to this day. And as I mentioned, even now, while he pretends to have been against the Iraq war, Donald Trump uh, who was not against it at the time, he is now calling for, frankly, allowing the terrorists to win, essentially, by closing the American borders to all at this point. To all. I'm not even sure how this would work. Here was uh, Donald Trump, of course, given a microphone by Fox and Friends uh, first, thing, uh, first thing today as the... Uh, as the Brussels attacks were still unfolding. I would close up our borders to people until we figure out what is going on. And we have to be smart in the United States. And when people come in, I mean, you know, we don't know where they're from, who they are. You look at them and look at it from any standpoint. They could be ISIS. They could be ISIS-related. They're coming into our country. They're coming in by the thousands. And just watch what happens. I'm a pretty yeah. good prognosticator. Just watch what happens over mm -hmm. the years. It yeah. won't be pretty. In my opinion... This is just the beginning. It will get worse and worse because we are lax and we are foolish. We are foolish. We can't allow these people at this point. We cannot allow these people to come into the country. So uh, <laughs> close the borders, close the borders to everyone. I don't know who that uh, you know, I don't know how we continue to uh, run this country when we start closing the borders to everyone. That means what Americans who are abroad can't even get back. Or is it only to to Muslims that we close the border? So any Muslims who are American citizens, uh, you know, or who are otherwise allowed to be here, if they want to come back, if they want to come back home, they can't come in either. Just close the borders. Everyone traveling, business people traveling across the country. Don't let them back in. Is that the plan? Is that your plan, Mr. Trump? He says we don't know who they are. They're coming in by the thousands. Well, we know who they are. We know who is coming into our country. Uh, you know, and and if he's talking about the, the, the refugees from war-torn Syria, uh, we know who they are, too, because they don't come here unless they've gone through already an 18 to 24-month vetting process. He loves to say they're not vetted, they come in, there's no paperwork. That's just a complete and utter nonsense. But he is the front-runner. 
for the Republican Party nomination. And as I have warned many times, if there are more such attacks like this, especially closer to the election, those people, those people who are laughing at Donald Trump right now may not be laughing, may be turning to him. Watch what happens, Donald Trump says. It will get worse, as if he was rooting for it. Yeah, elections, elections matter. Elections matter. And I'm tired of hearing people say, oh, it, it, it doesn't matter. Oh, my candidate didn't win. I'm not going to vote for... If Bernie doesn't win, I'm not voting for Hillary Clinton. I'm not going to vote at all. Okay, that is your choice, and I will fight for that to remain your choice. Uh, your vo- your vote to not be heard at all. Your vote to pretend you are uh, somehow boycotting and 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 boil. That'll teach them a lesson. Uh, you know, so it's up to you. But elections do matter. Don't tell me that they don't. Don't tell me that that election in two thousand that was given to George Bush that was stolen on his behalf by. The Supreme Court, don't tell me that didn't matter. It does matter. It did matter. It does matter. It still matters now. And as voters head to the primary polls today in Arizona and to caucuses in uh, in Utah and Idaho over the weekend, there's going to be more caucuses in Hawaii and Alaska and Washington state. As that happens, we are still unraveling on this program what happened during last week's primaries in a number of states, as most people are just looking at the horse race and they're not looking at the track conditions on which those horses run and the track conditions, which mean everything. You know, it it ultimately it didn't matter how the people of Florida wanted to vote in 2000. It was left to the Supreme Court. So the track conditions on which they are running, the, the ability for people to vote, the ability, ability for people to vote at all, to have their vote counted, to have their vote counted accurately in a way they know that it can be counted accurately, that continues to remain important. And we are continuing to look at that uh, even uh, in, in, like I said, a number of the states from last week's primaries, even as we uh, look to at least one very troubling development in one of the states set to hold a caucus on uh, on Tuesday night. All of that and more straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. The 2016 election season is now at full throttle. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year round, like no other media outlet in the nation. But we need your support to keep doing so, now more than ever. Please stop by Bradblog.com slash donate to make a monthly pledge of any amount you like to help keep us going, or even just a one-time-only contribution. While everyone else covers the horse race, we also keep our eyes on the track conditions those horses are running on. Because voting systems, access to the polls, and citizen oversight of election results can make all the difference. Please help us continue to fight independently for your democracy by taking about 60 seconds right now to stop by bradblog.com donate today. And thanks. Ah! 
Podcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com with you here. Uh, as I uh, mentioned in the previous segment, uh, voters are going to the polls today in uh, in Arizona for the uh, primary on both the Republican and the Democratic side in Idaho on the Democratic side for a caucus and in Utah for uh, for caucuses on uh, I think that's both the Republican and the Democratic side. Uh, although there is one very troubling element about the caucus on the uh, on the Utah side that I will get to in a moment, I hope here. Um, anyway, as I mentioned uh, previously, we are still continuing to look at what happened last week, and we will have uh, results on uh, on Arizona, Idaho, and Utah on our next uh, thrilling broadcast, no doubt. But we're still looking and still trying to figure out what the hell happened in Illinois. Missouri, Ohio, North Carolina, and Florida last week. We have been talking for the past several days about the thousands of voters who were turned away from the polls in one Illinois county alone, where they have estimated some 3,400, and that's just an estimate, 3,400 voters were unable to cast a vote because they ran out of paper ballots. The uh, the election, uh, the county clerk there in Adams County, Chuck Van Vertlow, uh, lowballed the number of uh, ballots that would be needed in that county. This is Quincy, Illinois, for those people who know the state. Uh, and uh, Adams County State's Attorney John Barnard, who was our guest on the show a few days ago, had uh, went to court, went to court the following day and got uh, a county judge to approve what would have been or what will still be if it comes to uh, comes to fruition a, an unprecedented plan to deal with the problems of the ballot shortages uh, and I've talked about already the last couple of days how I've spoken with the uh, county clerk there who is uh, fairly new, who didn't know, who, uh, you know, I, I don't think there was anything nefarious that happened here. But the idea that they didn't just print paper ballots, photocopy printer, uh, photocopy paper ballots then and there at the community centers and churches where the election was held is almost inexplicable. Um but for the fact that uh, Chuck Van Vertlow tells me he's new, he had no instructions. Nobody was there to help him do this uh, in the past. This is the problem that he has not run into in the past. Uh, in any event, the county clerk said, uh, yeah, here's what we will do. We'll, we'll take uh, state attorney uh, uh, John Barnard's uh, Adams County state's attorney John Barnard's idea and open the polls for an additional week, even though the election has already happened, for an additional week for those people who were not able to vote because of this government failure to supply enough paper ballots. And the state went then and appealed that ruling by that county judge. So this week, this week we were supposed to see voting in Adams County in what would have been an unprecedented uh, late extended voting after an election, after results had already been announced. John Bernard told me that, uh, look, it's an imperfect plan, but we need to do something. We need to try to make this up to those voters who tried to cast their vote. And God love him for saying so. And God love him for coming up with the idea and taking it to court and suing and actually winning, making his case before that county judge. Uh, but then the state, the state attorney's general, uh, attorney general went in and challenged the ruling, uh, appealed it. The county judge said, no, uh, this is good. This plan is going to move forward. That happened late Friday, just after we spoke with uh, uh, John Barnard on this show. 
Uh, and uh, then the state AG immediately went up to a higher court, to a, the 4th District Appellate Court, and got them to stop stop the extended voting from happening this week. The attorney general made made the case that this would set a precedent, that there would be all kinds of uh, problems that could occur in other counties where they would want to do a, a similar thing based on any number of problems. And so now uh, just a quick update uh, that uh, Adams County State's attorney, John Barnard, has filed a response uh, to that successful appeal by the state. He is still arguing that voters should be allowed to do this, that they would keep the ballots separated in case uh, the, the ballots that were cast during this extended period, that they would keep them separated in the event that uh, a higher court somehow uh, determined that this was an illegitimate way to move forward. Uh, so that's sort of where we are now. He plans to file an appeal uh, but if he said that if the appellate court does not reverse its uh, its stay, then he does not expect to go appeal it to the Illinois Supreme Court because the Adams County clerk must certify the results by March 29 for that March 15 election. He said, uh, by the time you can mount a similar challenge in the Illinois Supreme Court, you will have lost critical time. Not only are days critical here, but hours are critical here for to certify that vote by March 29. So uh, he's still fighting, but it's not looking good uh, as far as all of those voters, some 3,400 in Adams County alone who were unable to vote, who wanted to vote, who many of them waited in line for hours, but were not allowed to vote. That's the bad news on that story. Here's a bit of good news uh, that now is uh, confirmed by the Herald Whig in uh, in Quincy. Uh, as I mentioned, I had been speaking with the Adams County Clerk Chuck Van Vertlo. There were about 1,162 uh, photocopied ballots that were sent out for people to vote on Election Day on March 15. That was not nearly enough to cover all the people who needed to vote, but there weren't paper ballots uh, made available. But right after the election, he said that, well, we're going to take those 1,162 ballots and remake them onto actual uh, you know, official ballots so that they can be scanned in the scanner. They're actually going to remake those ballots. And uh, I kind of raised some hell about it and ask why the hell is he doing that instead of simply hand counting them, instead of remaking them and taking the risk. And, and frankly, the offensive move of, you know, rewriting someone's ballot. Um, I put him in touch with um, with an election clerk, uh, from uh, Columbia County, New York, who explained exactly how they hand count ballots because they hand count all ballots in this particular county. Uh, Virginia Martin is her name. Um, and uh, today the uh, and 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 Van Vertlo told me he was thinking about it. He was considering doing that hand count, as I suggested. Uh, and uh, the Harold uh, Wig confirms that, in fact, Adams County Clerk Chuck Van Vertlo has said that uh, if the court allows for late voting, his office is ready to go with ballots, and they have 15,000 sheets of ballot stock available. In the meantime, however, about half of the 1,162 uncounted ballots from the election have now been counted by hand. Yay! Right? Was that so hard? Yay, right? The photocopied ballots are uh, unable to be processed by the tabulating machines, the optical scanners there, uh, the paper notes of those ballots. Ballots, A vast majority were Republican ballots. Only 53 were cast for Democrats in this case. Van Bertlow said that two judges are reading them off. 
and two judges, one from each party, are marking down the count. He hopes that the election judges will be finished uh, on Tuesday with the results being posted on Wednesday. And that is exactly the uh, process that uh, Virginia Martin had explained uh, to him. So there's some uh, there's some good news. Uh, raising some hell seems to have paid off to some extent there. Uh, but problems uh, elsewhere in Illinois plagued voters on that same day, specifically student voters. And this is something that we had talked about, uh, again, the day after the election, uh, where student voters were running into problems uh, at Wheaton College. Remember Wheaton College, Desi? That's the, uh, the college where that uh, professor, that tenured professor, was terminated because she dared at the end of the year uh, oh, yes. show solidarity with Muslims at the time that Donald Trump was saying, you know, ban them from our country. She said they have the same God as we do. She promised to wear a hijab throughout the uh, Christmas season and in solidarity. And then she was disciplined. And she fired is what she was <laughs> for having the temerity uh, to, to stand uh, so to stand with them. Yeah, that college, that evangelical college outside of Chicago in DuPage County, Illinois, which we have been covering for years, is one of the most right-wing counties in all of Illinois. Uh, just horribly corrupt. They actually have a uh, you know a guy who has been uh, a member of the Republican Party. Uh, who has been fighting, uh, pretending, you know, voter fraud and, and pushing for the machines and pushing for photo ID restrictions that is actually on the payroll there or used to be on the payroll in DuPage County. Uh, to, just a terrible county. In any event, uh, at Wheaton College, um, a lot of people were looking forward to voting, many for the first time, according to uh, Think Progress, who who covered this in great detail. Uh, but. They were turned away. Many of these students were turned away, threatened, intimidated, uh, and uh, even threatened with arrest without a reasonable explanation. One polling location near the college campus did not allow hundreds of students to register to vote on Election Day, despite the new uh, the state's new same day registration law, because one election judge claimed that it would take too much time to register all of them. Wow. Others were turned away because they did not have uh, Illinois identification, which is also in violation of the law, or because of confusion about polling places. Uh, the uh, one poll worker threatened to arrest students who were waiting in line, in a long line to be registered toward the end of the day. What was really frustrating to me was that it just seemed like it was honestly intentional voter suppression, said Mariah Gonzalez, a senior at Wheaton College. Uh, Gonzalez said it was particularly noteworthy that students of many political leanings were coming together for this shared goal in a town like Wheaton, which she describes as polarized and evangelical. But uh, some students showed up at the polling location right near uh, campus there, and election judge David Liddy would not allow them to register. Some were denied because of Illinois law requiring voters to provide proof of their physical address. But they all but they only had the documents with their P.O. boxes on them where they receive mail at uh, on the campus. Gonzalez says she saw 35 to 40 students turned away for this reason without a full explanation of the documentation that they would need in order to register. And that that happened throughout the day. Uh, they, they were told uh, if if I'm uh, unable to register you all today, this was this uh, this poll worker, this uh, David Liddy. If I'm unable to register you all today, first of all, I want to thank you for being interested and involved in voting. Plus one thousand. 
minus 10,000 for waiting until the last minute to do it. He said to these students who were in line, many of them for hours. Drew Chambers, a Wheaton student from Virginia, told Think Progress that Liddy denied his attempt to register with his pay stub, a bank statement, a student ID, and a license, uh, and said that it was sufficient under Illinois law. Liddy quickly asked me what my state license, what state my license was issued in, and when I said Virginia, he promptly told me he would not register me, that I was a resident of Virginia, and to go vote there. That is not the law, I should note. That is not the law in the state of Illinois. That is not the law in, in all 50 states, actually, in this country, where you are allowed to vote. If you are going to school someplace, uh, you are allowed to vote in the place that you're going to school, even if you are from out of state. Chambers uh, said about this uh, this guy, this poll worker, he was visibly flustered. He asked me, who's telling you these things that you're allowed to vote here? You can't vote here. He said, when I said that I had researched the situation myself, heard from student groups on campus, and that it was my right to register in my home state or my college state, he replied, oh, so it's just a rumor filtering around campus? It's just gossip. Let me tell you, it's not true. Well, as it turns out, it was true. The student was right. The poll worker was wrong. Uh, Liddy, uh, he pressed Liddy and uh, it told him, no, he was not going to be voting in Virginia where the presidential primary had already occurred. But Liddy uh, shot down his effort. He said, unless you can show me an Illinois license, you aren't a resident. You can't vote and that he couldn't register. And now I have to tell all of your friends who are just as wrong. So have a good day. This was according to this uh, this student. Hannah Geringer, a sophomore at Wheaton College from Wisconsin, also told Think Progress that uh, Liddy denied her attempt to register on Tuesday morning because she did not have an Illinois state ID. Other students said so as well. Uh, and, and then finally, uh, those people who, who were able to, uh, who, to vote, who had a license uh, but didn't have uh, proof of residence, at the school because they received mail at the P.O. box. Well, eventually the school sent out an email to those students confirming their actual uh, address so that they could go and vote. But when some of them uh, returned, this was uh, Hannah Geringer, a sophomore, uh, when she returned to vote to the polling place on Tuesday evening with that required ID information, she was told she could not be registered because the line at that point was too long. Uh, basically, this guy was turning people away. Now, some of them were able to go to the county uh, headquarters, to the election commission, where they were allowed finally to vote, but many of them could not. Uh, one of the students said that uh, she's guessing that there was nearly uh, 200, probably over 200, just at one time that came at once to vote. And at this point, uh, there was an hour left uh, in, until the polls close. And they said, no, we, we can't do it. We've only got one computer here to register you. So you've got to go away. And of course, uh, none of these voters should have been denied. They could have stayed in line for as long as they want. And this is in this is in Illinois, where they don't even have a strict photo ID voting rule. Imagine. Imagine what is going on in these other states like North Carolina, like Texas, like Wisconsin. You know, where they have these uh, photo, where they have these strict photo ID laws. Imagine how many people uh, and how easy it will be to turn people away, to keep people from voting at all. In North Carolina, Ross Story uh, had a piece out last night 
about a guy uh, who, who was, as they say, put through the ringer. He was forced to take essentially a spelling test in order to cast his vote in North Carolina, where he had he actually had the ID. He had a, a driver's license. Guy's name was Rudy Ravindra. He's a resident of Wilmington. He wrote about it in the uh, in the uh, Raleigh News and Observer about his experience when he went to cast his ballot during the early voting period in North Carolina. He said he gave his driver's license to the poll worker. But the poll worker, for some odd reason, kept it face down and ordered him to spell his name. Uh, His name, his full name is Rudra Vajhala. He goes by Rudy, but it's Rudra Vajhala. And uh, so he had to uh, he had to actually spell it out. He said that he he told the poll worker he's identifying him as uh, H.W. He said, look at my I.D. And the poll worker said, you got to spell it. He said, so he took a deep breath and he began spelling. And as he was trying to spell it, the guy was misspelling it, was using a B instead of a D. And Ravindra described it as a spelling test. He said the farce went on for a while. Each time the, the, the poll worker made a mistake, he patiently corrected it. But finally, uh, and after also being asked for his address, Ravindra was able to vote. But he was, while he was tempted to tell the poll worker off, he didn't want to because he was afraid that they might summon the police and haul him off, he says in his op-ed. Now, that was during early voting. Ravindra then went back to the polls with his wife. He took his wife to the polls on Election Day at a different location with a different poll worker who proceeded to give her exactly the same treatment that he got, keeping her ID face down, asking her to spell her name, asking her to pronounce it. And all the while, both in the early voting that he was at and uh, in the Election Day voting that his wife voted at, Just as before, uh, Roster reports, white voters around them were easily able to pass right through with just a quick look at their ID cards. (laughs) Those those voters were not held up for some odd reason in Wilmington, North Carolina. Ravindra says, uh, my wife and I couldn't help feel that we were singled out. The poll workers could have simply looked at our IDs and saved a lot of time. Ravindra then uh, later called the State Board of Education to lodge a complaint. And the director apologized and confirmed to him that poll workers only have to look at the photo ID. There was n- it was not necessary for him to have to spell out his name. He had an ID. And yet they still took the opportunity to harass him. Why? Apparently because he was brown. And this is in North Carolina where they've just passed this uh, this new photo ID voting restriction, along with uh, limiting early voting days and hours, making it harder to vote, did away with uh, uh, registra- voter registration for 17-year-olds uh, who, could, who used to be able to register in advance if they were going to be 18 years old on Election Day. Um, the most, the strictest voter suppression law in the country, which was passed in North Carolina. Before that, and this was a guy who had a photo ID and he was still harassed. Imagine the some 218,000 registered voters already registered, legally registered voters. And remember, under federal law, when you go to register, you must show an ID. So these are 218,000 people who have already been identified in North Carolina, but who know who do not have the type of ID that is now required. That guy had the ID that was required. 
Imagine if you didn't. Well, we don't have to imagine. Ari Berman, we've been, we've, we've been talking about this uh, for actually years, specifically in North Carolina. Ari Berman uh, keeps turning out new examples, fresh examples, fresh horror out of the state of North Carolina, including uh, Ethelene Douglas, an 85-year-old African-American woman who grew up in the segregated South. She first registered to vote in 1964. Her struggle to obtain the necessary ID vividly illustrates the problems with the law, says Berman. In September of 2012, Douglas's niece, Clara Quick, took her to the uh, to the DMV in Laurenburg, North Carolina, to get a state photo ID. Remember, you're supposed to be able to get these free photo IDs if you don't have the type that is now required to vote in these states, in these Republican states where they have limited it. So uh, she went to uh, to try to get one of these IDs, a state uh, photo ID, in 2012. Douglas was told that uh, that she needed a copy of her birth certificate to get that ID. So they traveled across the state line to Dillon, South Carolina, where Douglas was born, to try to find her birth certificate. Remember, she's 85 years old. But the government office in South Carolina said she needed a photo ID in order to get her birth certificate. And then she was seemingly caught in this catch-22. This is from uh, this is from the affidavit that uh, that the uh, the niece Clara Quick filed in federal court in the case that is still pending in North Carolina against this law. So the niece then called the South Carolina's Vital Records Office, paid $17 for an expedited birth certificate, but still couldn't get one. Instead, she was told to find her aunt's marriage certificate, which was in Bennettsville, South Carolina. After getting that, they made a second trip to the North Carolina DMV, but, yes, you can see this coming, once again, uh, they were told that Douglas couldn't get a photo ID because she didn't have a birth certificate, even though she had the marriage certificate. They were so frustrated, they gave up trying for a while. And then in the fall of 2013, after North Carolina then passed the voter ID law, <clears throat> they made a third trip now to the DMV. An employee uh, told the niece uh, to get a census report to confirm her aunt's identity. Because remember, they still couldn't get that birth certificate. So she got a census report. That cost $69. Quick brought her aunt's census report, her marriage certificate, a social security card, a utility bill in their fourth trip now to the DMV in September of 2014 and was finally able to get the ID, the photo ID needed to vote. Hooray. It took just two years, four trips to the DMV, two trips to South Carolina and $86 in government documents for this 85 year old woman. This is our electoral system in 2016 when, yes, voting matters. Yes, elections matter. Yes, we see, uh, as we discussed in the previous segment about what went on in Brussels today, yes, elections matter. The people we put into office matter. We need to be able to make sure people can vote. We need to be able to oversee those votes. Now, uh, I'm, I'm getting a word of uh, huge lines in Arizona at the at the primaries today. Uh, apparently, they condensed what had been one hundred and ninety polling places to just 60 for some reason for today's vote. 
Lines are hours long in many places. Many people are being forced to cast provisional ballots. Uh, Gina E. writes to me uh, at bradcast at bradblog.com to say, I have never in almost 20 years of voting here in, uh, in Arizona seen anything like this. She considers it another form of voter suppression. And in the meantime, <laughs> it's just amazing. It never stops. And, and, you know, and I should say, I don't cover everything that I hear from people. I hear, all, you know, not only do I hear from people, but I see a lot of problems out there. Problems that are, uh, look, uh, mistakes happen. Problems happen. Elections can get messy. Caucuses can certainly get messy. But errors happen. You, you know, you've got uh, volunteers working at the polling place. Uh, it only happens every couple of years. Errors can happen. I only bother to point out things that, uh, you know, uh, appear to be, you know, em endemic of a larger problem. D issues that seem to suggest, you know, that are not just one-offs of a bad thing that happened to one particular person, unless that bad thing that happened to that one particular person, uh, you know, suggests that uh, we have a larger problem here. Well, guess what? We have a larger problem here. We have large problems all over the country. And we're about and as if the problems aren't bad enough, it seems like we're going out of our way to make more in Utah. In Utah, where they're having a, a caucus on uh, on Tuesday, presidential uh, Republican uh, presidential caucuses, but on the Republican side, I love the way that uh, Wired, uh, this is Issy Lepowski, uh, describes it. Security researchers pretty much uniformly agree that letting people vote online is a very bad idea. One that is fraught with risks and vulnerabilities that could have unknowable consequences for the future of democracy. This week, the Utah GOP is going to give it a whirl anyway. Uh, yeah, so the apparently the uh, Utah Republican Party paid more than $80,000 to a private company by the name of uh, Smartmatic. Heard of them? Which manages electronic voting systems and Internet voting systems in 25 countries. They will run the, uh, the GOP caucus system. Smartmatic will. Uh, and they will do it uh, via online voting. So I think there'll actually be in-person caucuses as well, but you have the option, if you want, uh, to vote online. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we know what could go wrong. Computer security uh, scientists and security experts have been warning us about this now for years. We have been talking about it on this program for years. The computer scientists have said, no, our Internet is simply not secure enough to allow this. Votes can be stolen and voters may well never know that their vote was stolen. And even if it's not stolen, even if uh, it's not hacked, even if devices they're talking about, you know, allowing them to vote from from their iPhone. So even if they're not hacked, there is actually no way to know at the end of the day, the voters cannot know whether it has been hacked or not, whether it has been recorded accurately or not. Now, uh, because this is a, a private affair as a as a caucus, it's not being run by the state. Uh, the party can do whatever the hell they want. 
And they're deciding to spend $80,000. They've so far, they've signed up some 59,000 Utah Republicans to vote online. Uh, and the guy who's uh, running this, this is Utah GOP chairman uh, James Evans, uh, says, well, uh, he, he, he dismisses the security vulnerabilities. He says that it would be far-fetched. It would be far-fetched that anybody would want to game this election. Really? It would be far-fetched? Uh, when he was asked about, where is this quote? I can't even find it. When, when he was asked about the idea of, you know, intimidate vote buying and vote selling, because what they're going to do is you can cast your vote and then you can apparently go look at a bulletin board to see how it is the system claims that they recorded your vote. And of course, the question comes up uh, for vote buying and selling and uh, voter intimidation. And Evans, the guy who's running this uh, for the uh, for the Ohio or for the Utah GOP, uh, when he was asked about the possibility of, you know, bribery and coercion, coercion, uh, you know, coercing someone to vote one way or another. He said, that doesn't make any sense to me. You're saying that in my house, I elect to vote online and you come into my house and force me. It's. So I, I guess what he's saying is, uh, you know, w uh, women who are married to, uh, you know, an abusive husband, they don't have to worry about it. I guess they're saying that, uh, you know, if, if you're an employee uh, and, and your boss wants you to vote a specific way and wants to make you prove it, eh, don't worry about it. That would never happen. He can't even imagine that happening. There is a tremendous lack of imagination in this country. I got to, I'm sorry, I'm running late. I got to get to a, a quick break. Uh, we'll be back. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Welcome back to the Bradcast. I ran I ran over all by myself. I ran late. Sorry about that. Uh, so just very quickly, uh, let me do one uh, reader uh, email. This is actually a comment that came in at bradblog.com about my conversation with Kevin Drum from Mother Jones on uh, on our program yesterday. Uh, we were talking about uh, many of the good things that were going on and how people's outrage and their fury over all manner of issues that is, you know, stoked by politicians. Uh, it really, it can be a disservice, uh, particularly when we're dealing with important issues. And we were, and and one of the things that uh, came up very quickly was Flint, Michigan, and uh, you know the fact that now the lead levels are somewhat closer to they're down from where they were, but. There's a problem all over the country when it comes to uh, lead levels. And his concern was that fighting about, uh, you know, being outraged about what happened in Flint means that we won't see it. Uh, uh, we, we won't deal with the problems in other states. Desi Doyen, what did you uh, say in your Green News report recently? There was Yes, some... it was a USA Today analysis of EPA data, and it found that there were almost nearly 2,000 systems in the United 2, States. 2,000 water systems, Affecting right. 6 million people. And so I think that was the point that... Uh, uh, that Kevin Drum was trying to make. I don't think he was trying to say, oh, there's nothing to be worried about, right. nothing to be outraged about at all in Flint. But uh, that wasn't really the main point of our conversation. Flint wasn't. Uh, and yet he made those comments. And uh, some have uh, 
taken exception, including Oaktown Girl at Bradblog.com, who stopped by to comment that the people of Flint had their democracy stolen out from under them and were living under emergency management rule. Uh, and and this is right. The Republican governor there just essentially removed all of the elected officials, put in whoever he want by, you know, after declaring an emergency. And it was that emergency manner who who flipped uh, the water to that new source that led to corrosion of the pipes that led to this uh, horrific lead poisoning across Flint. They had good water until the emergency manager, Oaktown Girl writes, and his stooges decided to flip the switch, willfully ignoring all of the environmental and health warnings. But Kevin Drum thinks we shouldn't be angrier about that than about any other community that has lead problems, and you don't call them on it, Brad? That's BS. Yes, she says, we have entrenched environmental problems all over the country, which desperately need to be addressed, but to dismiss that what happened to Flint as, quote, hysterical is beyond the pale. Surprised he just didn't come out and say, all cities matter, in a reference to uh, Black Lives Matter. Um and and those who say, well, all lives matter. Uh, you know what? I, I think her uh, criticism of both Kevin Drum and of me is fair. I think I should have said something about that. It wasn't really the point of our conversation, but I think that's a fair criticism. So uh, I wanted to get that out there. Thank you for sending that in, Oaktown Girl. If you'd like to uh, comment on anything you hear on our program, you can always email me. I am bradcast at bradblog.com, and you can stop by the Facebooks and the Twitters and find me at the Brad blog. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of the program, you can download it for free as ever at bradblog.com or over at iTunes until we meet again. And I suspect we'll be covering uh, election results that are going on on Tuesday. Until then, I'm Brad Friedman. Thank you. And good luck, world. Hey.